Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are discussing tales of terror and hauntings in the Northern Ozarks. We will get back to that in a minute, but first we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or about any other podcast platform. So what's so spooky in the Northern Ozarks? From the bloodiest 47 acres in America to the true story behind the blues classic Stagger Lee and hauntings from prisons and more, the Jefferson City, Columbia, Missouri area has a number of crucial entries in the Dark Ozarks universe. We will return to the Northern Ozarks in a minute, but first we want to invite you to like, follow, and subscribe Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, as well as your favorite podcast platform. We also invite you to become a Dark Ozarks Ozarks subscriber on Facebook. On the Dark Ozarks Facebook page, click subscribe, have your login information ready, and join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for only $4.99 per month. Your $4.99 per month subscription allows you to come with us on paranormal investigations, deep dive research, and topics that are too controversial for public view. The next 100 subscribers will be entered in a drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first-time copy of the book Dark Ozarks, The Spooklight. Subscribe today to be entered into that drawing. And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage you to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online on Facebook and at the website alwaysbuyingbooks.com for all your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more. Not to mention, the building is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and great food in a historical building with a noir past. And yes, their building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. (laughs) Mm. The Northern Ozarks, uh, surprisingly filled with a lot of noir history that everyday America has a tendency to overlook with the possible exception of one big location in Jefferson City. One very, very big, very big location, big buildings, um, the Missouri State Penitentiary, the old penitentiary. Um, Yeah. also referred to as the walls. And if you've ever been by it, you understand why they say that, because it's as if you are going by the walls of a castle 
or very big fort, which is not necessarily unintended. No, it is. It was definitely designed to be an unbelievably imposing structure. It was, and when it was built in the 1830s, the the capital, the Jefferson City, the second capital, was basically just being established. And although the area was settled earlier than a lot of other places in the state, it was still very rough country and the facility was intended to be a dual use as a fort as well as a prison as needed. I think that the average person perhaps driving by the penitentiary in say the last 20 years, et cetera, first of all, likely had or have no idea how old the original portions of the penitentiary are um, because we're, we're dating back to the, the penitentiary opening in 1836. Yes, actually it opened on the day of the Alamo, the Battle of the Alamo. A very interesting um, synchronicity, I suppose, in, uh, in American history. And there's, of course, thousands of, of inmates mm -hmm. in, in, in all of these years. A number of very evocative, infamous criminals uh, were housed there for a variety of reasons. And we're gonna talk about some of those tonight. It's exciting to, to pick that apart, put it back together. But something that to me is, is striking, first of all, is wrapping our heads around just as you previously mentioned, how wild uh, and untamed Missouri was in 1836. And mm -hmm. the idea that as the penitentiary is being built, we don't have a lot of mm, classic fortresses in the United States. And it, it seems that, you know, <clears throat> the uh, the, the ones that there are a, a handful, um, my two favorites growing up uh, was Fort Massachusetts on Ship Island. It was a mm -hmm. Union fort and a prisoner of war camp on a uh, barrier island off the coast of Mississippi during the Civil War, 11 miles off the coast. Incredible beaches, by the way. And uh, and, and, and um, of course, Castillo de San Marcos in St. Augustine. And yes. uh, I, I, growing as a child, I loved both of them so much because you could engage, you could interact with the spaces. You could, you could, you could find the cannon, you could run to the, the, through the spaces and up the staircases and so on and so forth. Just, uh, uh, neat experience all the way around. Uh, Fort Sumter was disappointing to me because there's like nothing left of it generally yeah. uh, as a result of you know it being a fort that was a target. So you know, there is that. 
I remember being looking out in Charleston Bay and being like expecting to see a fort and <laughs> it's not really there. Oh, not anymore, uh, there's a reason for that. Huh. But certainly out here on the, you know, as, as uh, the United States expanded westward, the forts were largely stockades. And by the time that resources or material was available to have built a substantial fortress, typically there was no longer a need for a substantial fortress. True. And, and so as, as a result of that, uh, the penitentiary at Jeff City really stands uniquely as this imposing Gothic structure that isn't just for show. It wasn't yeah. just built uh, to, and, and it, as an example, and I love the building, I'm not dismissing the building whatsoever, but the 20th, early 20th century Pythian Castle um, in Springfield, which I love the Pythian Castle, it is, it looks like a Georgian fortress, but it was never built to be a functional fortress. True, true. Uh, whereas the penitentiary is it's, built that way. Yes, and, and I think that it is just, it is phenomenal. It, <clears throat> the, the bits and pieces, the moments of uh, uh, it, not only its history, but various aspects of regional history that involve prison labor is mm -hmm. a bit chilling to yeah. be fair and um, along with that I, I also find just the the, the architectural choices the uh, the structure itself the statements being made in so many cases particularly today uh, establishment of government is is designed at least with the patina of uh, of friendliness, openness, uh, the, the 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 PR marketing campaign to say let's get together and hug in a very beige space, hopefully with lots of windows and uh, sunlit regions and uh, you know uh, opening and closing doors that are you know, won't shut and not let you out. And the penitentiary, I don't, you don't even have to know anything about the space. You could just have casually driven by with no knowledge of its history to know that this building was making a hell of a statement. And the statement was, we're in charge. Exactly, exactly. And really the, the comparison on so many of those levels, to me, the, the best comparison really is Alcatraz as far as construction, as far as that statement that we're in control, you are not. Um, and having been to Alcatraz, it's, of course, after it was not being used, uh, but going on tour, um, very much the same feeling and uh, when you when you go to Alcatraz of course you take the ferry over so you have time to think about it as you approach and everything although with penitentiary and Jeff City it's almost the same feeling because you see it for so you know, for a distance and the way it's perched that <laughs> you know uh, 
you have time to contemplate, and I'm sure that they did even in 1836 with the first prisoners, um, which started out with um, one, one prisoner to begin with, and then 15 more from St. Louis were the initial prisoners. Um, yes. The first prisoner coming from Green County, Missouri, from Springfield for stealing a watch. Um, mm -hmm. And most of the other early prisoners were there for theft as well. And once that started, it really didn't quit. The, no. Uh, the, uh, the roll calls of prisoners, both infamous to history and mostly lost to history, uh, passed through those walls or in and never left. Yeah. Now, and, and, and perhaps still there. And perhaps still there. I, I do want to add in, I'm, I'm, I, I do want, I'm a little jealous. I do want to see Alcatraz. I've never, never yeah, been. <laughs> I'm, I'm really anxious to, um, to go out there and see it before the 22nd century when a Federation dreadnought crashes into the top of it and destroys it in <laughs> at least one timeline of Star Trek. But <laughs> fortunately, I, I'm assuming that in the 22nd century, the, uh, the Jefferson City, the Missouri State Penitentiary of Jefferson City is, is still there. Um, I, I just, it, it, just so people know, I have a bad habit of calling it the Jeff City Penitentiary or the penitentiary at Jeff City. And so I, I'm, I'm not used to calling it by its official name of the Missouri State Penitentiary, former Missouri State Penitentiary. That said, we talked about, well, there, there's uh, a number of, of key criminals and key criminal cases and capital punishment was performed, was done at the penitentiary. Yes. Uh, beginning first with hangings, and then uh, in the 50s, they added the gas chamber. And as a, as a separate building, actually. Yes. Yes. And uh, <clears throat> that way they had to make the walk. Yes. And there is what's called the hole. Uh, mm -hmm. that is essentially a dungeon that's, yeah. and, and, and the penitentiary was in use all the way up until it closed in comparatively recent times, 2004. Yeah, and then it wasn't too, too long, much longer after that, four or five years that they started doing walkthrough tours, uh, generally with former employees conducting them. Um, as a means of preserving the buildings. And then those have gotten to the point that they're daily, uh, you have to make reservations. Um, there are you know, daily public ghost tours as well. Plus you can book private investigations as well. Um, the private investigations I know are booked out almost a year in advance. So um, it's 
continuing to attract people. And I think it's good because I think a lot of people do end up going on the tours because they're interested in the hauntings, but there's a lot of history to, to see and learn about. And so um, it's one more, it's one more example of where interest in the paranormal, I think, helps give a good context to our history. I, I would very much agree with that. And that's something that we see pretty consistently at this point. And I think it's important to interject. I, I continually find it fascinating. We've transitioned in a fairly short time, I'd say about 20 years, from hauntings in public spaces, falling under the category of the employees being told, don't mention any of the weird things that happen here because it might hurt business, to right. um, promoting, actively promoting the weird things that happen in the locations because it's good for business. And I think by and large, that's very positive. It really is. And more tourism is gaining traction and, and it is a good thing all across the country, not just the Ozarks. So, yeah. So I found this, this particular number interesting. In 1932, the 47 acres had approximately 5,300 inmates. This yeah. is, they, they were packed in for obvious. Yeah, um, it, it was not designed for that many. Um, and some of the cells, particularly in isolation cells, the dungeon, you know, some of those cells, they packed up to, you know, 10, 12 people in there in a cell. Right. And of course there was over its long history, a considerable amount of uh, prisoner abuse that yes. took place. A lot of prisoners, for a variety of reasons, and some just because they were serving out such long sentences, a lot of individuals died within this space. Yes, a lot died from illness, from violence. Um, discipline was very harsh, uh, particularly um, in the earlier days, but really up through a lot of the 20th century as well, um, guards could uh, physically discipline prisoners for pretty much any infraction mm -hmm. and um, being put in isolation was not uncommon. Um, yeah. And some of these cells were um, so dark. In fact, they were, you know, there's one that's called the blind cell that if someone was in there over a couple of weeks, often they would lose their eyesight because there was absolutely no light. Um, and even an instance of a female prisoner being put in there who died shortly after coming out after a month. And which also brings up an interesting fact. There were both male and female inmates in. Yes. Uh, women were added later, but yes. But, but, but still it was in the 1800s when they started housing female prisoners there too. Right. In 1868, the A Hall uh, was built to house posts of war criminals. 
Yes. And, and I guess it, I guess okay. we should note that during the Civil War, when it was a prisoner of war camp, the conditions were known to get pretty deplorable. Um, uh, regular um, army prisoners, Confederate prisoners were housed there. Most of the uh, Carson Rangers or Bushwhackers, um, irregular um, Confederates were sent to St. Louis to the Garrett Street Prison, but mm -hmm. uh, some were sent to Jeff City as well, as well as some female um, Confederate prisoners. Right. <clears throat> it's, and then, uh, so the penitentiary did operate a lease program where businessmen could hire in inmates to work for them. And several buildings in Jefferson City, including the First Capitol, uh, the governor's mansion, which we'll talk about later in the episode, uh, and several area homes were built using prison labor or essentially slave labor. Right, which during the time period was not an unusual practice throughout the country. No, it was not. And I think the 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 prevailing view, and I find the the dynamics of this of this process to be really fascinating because the the prevailing view, of course, from a law and order perspective, is you threaten society by your actions you did so uh, of your own accord nobody was twisting your arm and taking the, the extremely hierarchical um pro on the outside uh pro pro societal law and order position here for just a moment um, nobody nobody made you go commit those crimes so at the point that you chose to do that and chose to put yourself beyond the pale, mm -hmm. then it's up for grabs. You, you basically forfeited your soul at that point. Pretty much in a, in a civic sense, yes. And certainly it's, I think throughout this entire process, it's very easy to constantly be swinging back and forth between these extremes in terms of, for example, the deplorable conditions uh, that are difficulty perhaps of wrapping our heads around essentially slave labor, prison labor camp, uh, prison labor, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the treatment of prisoners for, for at various times throughout this process. But then you, you flip over to some of the uh, some of the inmates, some of the crimes that were committed, some of the atrocities that these individuals chose, um, you know, Bonnie uh, B. Hetty is one, um, yeah. you know, premeditated murder of a six-year-old uh, for money. And yeah. Bonnie Hetty and, and Carl Hall, yeah. That, yeah, it's a very gruesome case. And and then you look at that, and it, it doesn't take doesn't take too many newspaper articles in the in earlier times, you know, whipping up the sentiment that you're going, yeah, y'all just deserve what you got, mm -hmm. 
uh, go behind the walls and rot for all the rest of us care. We're going to go on with our lives. It's very, uh, it really messes with your perceptions to, to deal with the structures like this. Because, and I think it's also fair, there is a morbid fascination with these structures, mm -hmm. but there is also, it's, it's much easier to be fascinated about it in the past tense and not even think about it in the present tense. We don't even want to wrap our heads around the fact that, you know, even to the point that we create these uh, euphemisms uh, for them today, like the, the, the very touchy-feely sound of the term correctional center. Yeah, instead of prison or, yeah, yeah. or penitentiary, yeah. It's, uh, but it, it does come down, I think we ought to talk a little about just some of the reported hauntings. Well, before we do that, um, we really should talk about the September 1954 riot. Yeah. Yeah, um, and it was not isolated. There, there had been a number of prison riots across the country um, coming out of very harsh conditions of, of the facilities um, and poor treatment. And basically, when got to some of the prisoners that there had been riots going on, and that's kind of what started whipping up the sentiment and um, it started with a couple of prisoners uh, feigning illness, guards coming in to check on them and basically they jumped them, they, um, uh, they uh, bludgeon one to death immediately, get their keys and start opening cell doors. Right and <clears throat> And that was, of course, the evening of September 22nd. By midnight, Missouri Highway Patrol, police from Kansas City and St. Louis, and the National Guard were at the prison mm -hmm. uh, responding. By that time, four buildings were on fire. And before it was over, nearly 2,500 inmates were loose and rioting on the inside of the walls. Yes. Uh, they killed some of the... Um some of the other inmates one inmate i think committed suicide or tried to in the midst of all of this um and just a lot of damage and and so um, now law enforcement was faced with the fact that they were having to assault a fortress basically <laughs> yes the 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 situation i mean the 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 building that the not building the the complex that had been designed to be not only impenetrable but also impossible to get out of now was having to be the 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 structures that they were having to go into but mm -hmm. and you you add on to this uh from the very beginning uh the penitentiary is not far removed or somehow isolated from the neighborhoods of jefferson city no, they're, they're yeah, it, yeah, it, it's not like you have a, uh, you know, a, a barrier area between at all. And so they basically had lines of defenses and it came down to 18 officers going in um, 
<laughs> heavily armed um, and uh, really not knowing what they were going to find. Right. And, and it was, I mean, I think for, for a short period of time, it was basically a war zone. Mm -hmm. And in, in, in all fairness to the gravity of the situation, a war zone that, that if that riot and the, those inmates had not been contained, they would have had in somewhere between two and 3,000 extremely dangerous individuals loose in the capital. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's why they had two more fallback lines with you know armed officers. Um, it, it was basically a, a military style campaign to take control and it took a number of hours to get control. It was and surprisingly uh, was a, comparatively speaking, considering the intensity and the, 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 the expansiveness of the 1954 riot, a surprisingly low casualty count on both sides. Yes, I mean, uh, it is pretty surprising that um, there, there, were, there wasn't more uh, death or severe injuries, um, which in part may be that a lot of the people participating it was opportunistic and also a, a sense of frustration over conditions itself and not more calculated. And in, in, I need to read more on it, but you know, it may also speak to uh, the effectiveness of the response. And oh, I, I think that was in part, yes. The, the response that, that realistically, just in terms of numbers, uh, may have been a lot more humane than we would think or that we would initially conclude. That's true. They, um, they, they had officers on the, on the roofs and they, they it, it, you know, and they warned everyone to get in cells or, the, or they would be shot only, only one refused and he was shot and then basically once that happened everyone pretty much cooperated and uh the 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 inmates who had been rioting were uh processed and everyone was back in their cells by mid-afternoon yeah i mean when you think about it that's amazing the you know when you're dealing with that that many and trying to get them all to the right spot again yeah. Um, it <clears throat> and the the term bloodiest 47 acres in america was coined by time magazine in 1967 um the the damage caused by the riot was estimated at five million dollars and that's mm -hmm. five million dollars in 1954 dollars not yeah 2023 dollars so does give an idea of the scope, but 168 years of operation and during throughout the history, again, giving a sense of scope, uh, the, the penitentiary contained as many as 50 buildings 
uh, mm -hmm. within this 47 acres. So it's massive. And with, again, that incredible history. Now, what are your, uh, before we get into the, the individual cases, uh, your cursory thoughts just on the, the hauntings of a location like this? Well, I think um, a couple of things come into play. One, you have so many people going through there, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands over the years of prisoners, of employees. You have a lot of tension, high emotions, whether it be fear, whether it be anger, uh, depression, uh, etc. that it may seem cliche, but those kinds of things do seem to permeate an environment. And uh, you, you end up with that type of atmosphere almost sealed in the walls. Mm -hmm. um, and for a lot of these, a lot of these prisoners, I mean, even ones that are say on work release or something, so much of their time is just rumination and, you know, stuck in your head thinking about everything, you know, that it really, I think it really does have an impact um, then you have a lot of violence. You have people who died, you know, whether by the public hanging, you know, not public, but the hangings or, uh, the, later the gas chamber, uh, other violence, um, you know, there's the, the, the example of the, uh, the prisoner who was known to be a snitch that he was beaten to death. Um, and he's specifically his cell is a area that people encounter uh, paranormal activity on a regular basis and they think it's him. Um, so you, you have a lot of the factors that, that go into a haunting in various locations all in one spot. Yes. And so you know, if it weren't haunted, I would be amazed. Agreed. And <clears throat> a handful of locations in the penitentiary is one of those locations that I would contend that all the normal things that we say about hauntings go out the window. Very true. Uh, you know, maybe some, maybe some, of course, that more typical things, but you're just going to have a lot more chance to have something that is angry, that is interactive, that is really trying to push back um, yes. because of what was experienced there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, and, and I suppose I should, I should clarify because much of, much of our work uh, is, is, not done in these locations. It's done in um, mostly positive settings. Uh, mm -hmm. It's done in, in everyday settings. And 
is something that, in all fairness, the uh, plethora of ghost shows and their uh, resident requisites of the medium, almost said resident evil, um, <laughs> racking city forever, is, <laughs> is associated with, has created certainly a lot of, uh, of interest in the paranormal, a lot of mystique about the paranormal, Mm -hmm. But it has also created a lot of fear, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I had the opportunity to give uh, one couple a tour at the Old English Inn uh, within, you know, fairly recently, and the they were uh, the, the wife in particular was she wanted to go on a tour she wanted to see the the hotel she wanted to know about the history she was interested in the ghost it was also obvious that she was a little bit scared and the you know the before we did anything else uh on the mezzanine i'm like okay here time out <laughs> here's here is how we need to approach this uh we need we need to understand that these are residents. They they are here because they care about the location. They they have an emotional or some sort of energetic bond to this space. Mm -hmm. uh, we're the guests, and we need to treat you know this space with a great deal of calm and respect, and just let them know that we we love the space too. We appreciate it. It's all going to be fine. We're there's nothing really to be creeped out about there's nothing really to be concerned about we see the same thing uh the kendrick house uh, we mm -hmm. see the same thing at, at the ritchie mansion we see the same thing uh the uh web city library last november mm -hmm. and and again uh great attendees great crowd great questions uh, but a lot of mm, the 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 cursory comments was Oh my gosh, it's spooky. Oh, what can ghosts do to us? These types of things. And we're like, it's a library, guys. Calm down. Yeah. Calm down. If somebody is here and they are, they're here because they love the space too, it's okay. Now we get to the 47 bloodiest takers <laughs> of America. This is a little different. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, they are the residents, we are the yes, guests are. there, um, but their attachment is not there because they are there because they are have warm and friendly feelings about it. Um, and they do, you know, in those situations, they tend to lash out more. Now I have seen some of the same behavior happen other places, you know, that you wouldn't put in that same category. One mm -hmm. of the, the hauntings that occurs there, you know, is um, is related as sometimes, you know, uh, feeling something going through them and, you know, the feeling of being pushed, et cetera. I've, you know, I've uh, seen that happen in other locations that you wouldn't necessarily say, oh, you know, it's a prison or it's an asylum or it's this or that, that would, lend itself to anger um so 
it can, those things can happen in other locations, but generally not. And it and generally has a lot more to do with um, the atmosphere of the living too, you know. Um, right. but, and uh, I, would, I would say that the energy that you take with you into a space like penitentiary is even more important to police yourself and your energy within that space. Oh. It's important on any investigation, but it's especially important in a space like this. Yes, because you do need to be on guard, you know. Um, uh, one location that, you know, that you've been to as well would be the Bordello in, in Galena, Kansas, that, um, there's some there there there's someone there that's not happy and you you know um they will take advantage of that if they if they can and that's that's what happens in these types of situations and the penitentiary is just that amplified yes <clears throat> and it, I, it, we should note i have not been in the penitentiary since it has been open for these tours I do very much want to go I've talked to several people who have been mm -hmm. uh, I definitely want to make it up there oh and I haven't either I mean when I when I've been there it's it was when it was operating and you know I, I was there as an attorney uh, but um, and uh, yeah and so yeah I do hope to get hope, hope to get up there pretty soon so the uh this is some some of the uh, experiences uh included haunting in cell number 48 invest investigating missouri state penitentiary with ghost adventures nick groff mm -hmm. and that and then there's a great photo it's if you folks are interested it's the weekinweird.com website and there is there is a snapshot in relationship to cell number 48 the inmate had been bludgeoned to death uh, mm -hmm. during the riot with a sledgehammer yeah and the um distorted image that appears in the photo is creepy it is it is creepy um and um the the relation of the experiences they had in the cell was rather interesting i thought um, I, I did too and additionally the and just a, a cursory reading of of all of their documentation all of it sounded not dissimilar to a variety of things we've experienced on investigations in, oh, yeah. in varying intensities mm -hmm. And I guess just as a shout out segue, uh, since uh, Nick was involved with that one that you mentioned, um, if people can check out Death Walker with Nick Groff and watch the episode about the Kendrick House in Carthage, Missouri. Yes, I. <clears throat> it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal piece. I, I was so excited to see the Kendrick House featured <laughs> yeah and uh and nick does a great job i, I 
I, I like his approach. I, you know, I've known Nick a long time and um, I think that, you know, he did a very good job with it. And, um, and in um, the episode with the penitentiary, I found it, the approach very similar. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> the, uh, <laughs> the keys. Yeah. The keys of the Kendrick house. For people who are wondering, I'm not going to give it away. You need to go watch the episode. I'm actually really happy to see it finally available in the U.S. Um, yeah. Because the uh, we've sort of been sitting on this reality for quite some time, months, because while it has not been available in the United States, it has been available in the U.K. So you being in dialogue with Nick and knowing that it's out there, actually getting, we got to see the episode separately yeah. yes but yes it's uh the very good evidence todd and and if you've ever been on tour uh with us at the kendrick house you are familiar with the keys and uh they play a pretty big role in the episode and they do and the the and, and again i'm not we're not going to tell you what it is go watch the episode but a very important term that you use there, which is evidence caught. Mm -hmm. Where we're talking about video evidence that really has moved out of the realm of speculation. Yes. And yes. and thanks thanks to uh, technology in terms of being able to set up cameras remotely, etc. Getting <clears throat> something that in many haunted locations, but uh, the Ritchie Mansion comes to mind, Kendrick House come to mind for a variety of reasons for us. But so many of the reports of the hauntings in both of these locations, someone being in another room and hearing something move, mm -hmm. hearing something scraping, hearing doors opening, closing, hearing footsteps, hearing activity, hearing physical interaction but of course as soon as somebody starts doing something it all quits it goes away right and you can think oh my gosh if i could just had a camera set up in that room i might have been able to see what was what was going on and that's exactly what we're looking at of course you guys got uh, some phenomenal uh captured video evidence at, at the web city library um, yeah as well in terms of things moving on their own yeah. and which if you're not used to this sort of thing that is not an uncommon experience on long-term investigations oh look at that it moved on its own again that <laughs> that's true and, and that's that is an advantage of being able to investigate locations over time so <laughs> The, the books in the library just started moving around on their own. Must have been a weather balloon. <laughs> um, <laughs> all of my memes have been red weather balloon related this week. Can't imagine why. Um, <laughs> so cell number 48 is, again, <clears throat> in talking about the the physical weight 
the weightiness of the room, the weight mm -hmm. of the space. That, let's, oh, I'm, I'm curious, I've experienced that mm -hmm. uh, a number of times. You walk into a space and it just feels heavy. Feels it, heavy or, or some other sensation. I think one, another sensation associated with that cell is a feeling of um, almost electricity or, you know, um, that kind of thing. And that, that does happen in locations. One that comes to mind for me um, uh, is actually at the Anderson House uh, in Lexington, Missouri. And um, you will walk into the lower hallway and particularly at times it's so heavy and you feel like you're in a static field and it, you end up feeling like you're in a tunnel and that it's moving in a circular motion. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> From from what I can what I can tell, you and I were on a on a, on a preliminary investigation recently, mm -hmm. walking walking onto a, a, a raised area in an older building, and immediately um, heaviness, pressure, almost a mm -hmm. sense of vertigo. We both chalked it up to a high EMF field related to just elect electrical equipment. Right. Um, K2 meters registered almost nothing. Yeah. No, there was there was no EMF there. <laughs> and, and and a lot of people, I think, regard the, the EMF detectors, electromagnetic field detectors, as the the gold standard of whether or not there is paranormal activity there, but that's not always the case. No, no. Um you know, EMF can be from a lot of different things. Um, even if you do have high EMF, it, it, it can be a lot of things that are not paranormal. Um, and you can have very similar sensations to high EMF when no EMF is detected. Mm -hmm. So, um, and those are the situations that are the most interesting because you can't, you know, it's trying to figure out why that sensation is going on. Um, yes. but, but definitely those are the kinds of um, sensations that often are in areas that have the highest activity, yes. Mm -hmm. And it <clears throat> is fascinating. Now, just as a continuation of this particular case with cell number 48, um, one, of the, one of the other team members have been standing in the doorway of the cell turned abruptly at the sound of something rushing down the catwalk toward him. Whatever it was, was moving quickly in enough bracket to get our attention. The invisible force entered the cell at an exceptionally fast rate, collided with the inside of my left leg, knocking me back a few paces before dissipating completely. Uh, the experience was over before I even realized what had happened. And though it has been months since the event, I'm still not able to fully explain what happened. Uh, I've, I, I've been in a number of those kinds of situations. Um, I've, um, I've had things go through me, um, invisibly. Um, I've 
watched investigators have something um, go into them, you know, hit them, so to speak, that I remember one, um, actually at the Kendrick house, someone standing there and it literally looking like someone had kicked them in the back of the knee and they, they go, down on, go down on the knee real quick. Um, I've, I've seen investigator, you know, pushed on his bad side. Mm -hmm. um, and the way it happened, it really looked like someone had just tackled him. Yeah. Yeah. And this is uh, the comparatively rare circumstances, yeah. but I, I do find, I find this fascinating. There, there are, of course, a, a, a wide variety of ideas and misconceptions about interacting with ghosts. Yes. Uh, I was going to say the broad term, the paranormal or entities or energies or something i'm like wait a second this is dark ozarks i can actually say what i'm talking about interacting with ghosts and one conversation that i remember having fairly again comparatively recently has been you know quote uh, ghosts can't actually interact with us so why am i scared and the experiential evidence says at times ghosts can physically interact with us. Well, it, energy interacts with matter all the time in various ways. And basically mm -hmm. that's, that's what's happening. And uh, I, I know I've experienced it. I know lots of people who have. Um, I think people want to comfort themselves and if I can't if I can't see it, it can't hurt me or it can't interact with me. Um, and that's not the case. I mean, I what uh, one of the sort of funniest circumstances like that, um, stories like that happened at the uh, the opera house in Carthage um, after. Uh, it was after the building that store had had burned and there had been water damage in the building. And so they had people in working and they had insurance adjusters in. Owners standing there talking to insurance adjuster. And it's a rather tense conversation going back and forth, everything going on. And uh, uh, the owner said he felt something walk through him. And then he said, the space of a couple of seconds that it would take the rate it went through him to reach the other person, the insurance adjuster who he was talking to, he said the guy just tensed and looked around and said, what was that? And the owner's reaction was, oh, well, that was just a ghost. Now let's talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, <clears throat> again, I do think that how we approach a lot of these things is probably more important than what uh, a ghost is particularly capable of at any given time. Generally speaking, that's very true, I think. The... Uh, 
are there are there other uh, hauntings that you've heard about, particular hauntings with the penitentiary that you think are notable at this point? I know there are many. Yeah, it, the, down you know the isolation cells. There's there's you know the similar types of of activity, but that area is supposed to be um, pretty active. Um, uh, in the past, you know, where the gas chamber was was supposed to be very active. Um, the morgue. Uh, sort of almost the usual suspects when, when you talk about these kinds of buildings, the places that typically seem to have activity um, is where uh, you would get the most at, activity and stories come out of there. And uh, the <clears throat> uh, twofold moving, moving over to the, the gas chamber mm -hmm. at the penitentiary, um, around 40, inmates were executed in the gas chamber after it was installed. Of course, there's numerous hangings that took place prior to that. In, right. Uh, the, the 19th and, and um, early 20th century. <clears throat> one, I believe, uh, a, what would consider to be a standout execution, one of, I think, only two women in the United States to be executed was yeah. one of those women was executed at the Missouri State Penitentiary. Um, her name was Bonnie Hetty. At one of the investigations doing recording for EVPs, believe that they picked up the word love somewhere around in the immediate proximity of the, the execution chambers. And mm -hmm. uh, Hetty was apparently recorded as having said that she had committed the crimes for love, quote unquote. Right. Uh, and so there was a, there was a, a drawing a line between those. I wasn't involved obviously in that um, investigation. So, but it does bring up a question, which I, I think it's worth talking about. There are times that you record EVPs that are unmistakable. Yes. Uh, that it that there is no question but what a someone is clearly speaking, saying things. Um, and and y'all with Paranormal Science Lab have captured a number of those uh, documentably. <clears throat> a lot of what we um, are often told is an EVP. Mm -hmm. Sounds like garbled white noise. That if you kind of squint and read the subtitles, you can listen to it multiple times and convince yourself that there was a word there. But if you had just played it through without any precursors, without um, the 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 predictive programming uh, to go along with it, you wouldn't have caught anything. What? What's your approach when it comes to deciding what is what is legitimate in terms of an EVP? Well, if if it's not, a, to be honest, probably the majority of EVPs we throw out because they, they aren't clear enough to be fairly certain what it says. Um, 
so and many are so soft and breathy or there's enough white noise that you you really can't with any certainty say this is what I'm hearing and we'll have a number of people also review it independently and then you know it's like everyone write down what you hear and if everyone you know if we've got everyone has something different then you know and not really not really feeling that one um and that's my experience when I do I don't watch a lot of the shows anymore but when I do catch one and uh, I'll I'll see what they are playing for EVPs and yeah even what makes it on TV a lot of them it's like I'm not hearing that mm-hmm. you know um <clears throat> now occasionally they they have some that you go oh yeah that's real clear that's exactly what that says you know but you yes. know um I, I think that people feel a pressure to put things out there no matter what and I don't I I don't do that um I'd rather say we didn't get any good EVPs rather than put 10 out that are questionable so yeah and and something that I I I think is an important interjection is to for for folks to just take a step back and contemplate is that the human mind in order to make sense of its surroundings, seeks out recognizable patterns. It it does. And if you're in a, in a situation that you know certain things about that location, mm-hmm. your mind also tries to fit what it's hearing to match the location, what you think you should be hearing. And it, it can be very, very difficult to objectively take yourself out of the, um, you know, maintain an analysis process, but take yourself out of the equation of what the data is uh, it, or it is can, not. It, it can be, you know, it, it can be easy to, to fall into that trap. And, um, and that's, that's, And it, <clears throat> and coming back to this particular case, um, the the Carl Hall and Bonnie Hetty case, I was I found this particular case just to be unbelievably chilling. Yeah. Uh, of course, it does have a. Mm, it it it's basically connected to the the entire I seventy corridor. Uh, mm-hmm. Kansas City, Jefferson City, St. Louis. Um, I need to just check on my puppy. Okay. Um, but I was wondering if you could give folks an overview of this of this case, and we're we're really transitioning predominantly into the crime portion of the episode. Okay. So, yeah, I'm happy to do that. 
Um, Carl Hall was um, sort of an interesting figure. He was the son of a, a wealthy St. Louis lawyer. Um, his father died in 1946 and left him more than $200,000, which was a large amount then. But Carl basically wasted it through partying and, and drugs, et cetera, and quickly had no money. So uh, to feed his drug habit, basically, at that point, he began to rob taxi cabs. And it wasn't long before they figured out who was doing it. And they arrested him. He was convicted. And he was sent to the Missouri State Prison. Um, and was there about 16 months, released in 1953. Um, but he still had many problems. So he was trying to figure out what to do. So he started planning the kidnapping and actual murder of a young child. It was a six-year-old son of one of the richest men in Kansas City, uh, Robert Greenlees. He was a 71-year-old car dealer who um, he and his wife had this um, uh, six-year-old boy. And so when he, uh, when he was released from prison, when he, he stepped outside, he was greeted by a woman that he never knew. And this is where it started. I mean, it's kind of a very odd circumstance how all this came about. Um, and um, she was 41-year-old widow and she embraced him and kissed him passionately, then introduced herself. And she was Bonnie Brown Hetty. And she had been an actual gun mall during the 30s. She was married to uh, a bank robber who um, been in prison. And then he escaped and ended up being killed um, by a sheriff's posse. And so... Um, she basically had her eye on Hall. And so she takes him, she takes him home and they start planning this kidnapping. Yes. Yes. Um, and it appears that no, they, they were uh, planning and they did a demand a ransom of $600,000, which was a huge amount of money in the, in the 50s. And, um, but it appears that they planned to kill the boy from the get-go. From the get-go. That was the most disturbing aspect of this, uh, coupled with what they do afterwards in terms of interaction with the parents. Yeah, um, you know, basically they they um, threw uh, subterfuge at school. Um, Bonnie pits the boy up, and then the school figures out the mistake has been made, and they call him home. They realize that that you know that um, she didn't have permission to pick him up, and so. You know, the police are called and everything. They end up shooting the boy in the head almost immediately within hours and taking him back to her 
house and burying him and then pursue getting the, the ransom, which they did. And then a series of phone calls with the parents, basically keeping them on the string that the boy is alive. Yes. <clears throat> and it's, you know, as you go through, it's just very, I mean, it's very, very callous. It is, of course, it's any parent's nightmare. It's no wonder that um, at the time that, that this electrified the society, really, in terms of the case. Yes. And um, so, I mean, not only just almost taunting the parents with hope, um, yeah. But then um, it, it, it turns into, you know, even more because then when they're caught, the, the, the police turn in, you know, police officers that, that catch them, they turn in part of the ransom money. And before it's all over with, two of the police officers are charged with stealing the money. Yes. And they, they never really recovered it. Uh, a few bills were passed, I think, in Michigan and even Canada. But, um, you know, they never found the, the, the money. Um, and Paul and Hetty were convicted and um, sentenced to to be executed at the penitentiary. And yes. I thought another very chilling thing, while, while Carl was very calculating and in, in, in coming up with this, Bonnie made the comment, I mean, you know, they started coming up with different stories, trying to get out of it that didn't work, but including her saying, you know, she did it for love, that kind of thing. And, but when it was announced that they were getting the death sentence she said she would rather be dead than poor yes and you know, that that's rather that's rather chilling it is <clears throat> it is and of course so many i mean it's very natural for parents to love their their children uh obviously what seems to really have been the case and in the case of the boy, the six-year-old who was murdered, was that his parents were incredibly dedicated to him. Yeah. And, and of course, this was in an era when it was not particularly difficult for somebody just to walk into a school and say, hey, I need to pick up so-and-so, and they would let them. Right, and this was a situation she showed up saying that I think the mother was ill um, mm -hmm. and she'd been sent to pick him up. Yeah, it just, it's, it is, it's exceptionally disturbing, exceptionally sad. It, it, it really is, it really is. Um, and so, I mean, whether that EVP that they discuss is her or not, who knows, but to me, it seems almost an odd thing that she would be saying from everything Agreed. else. Agreed. 
agreed. And they uh, <laughs> they were then they were executed together, which I found also interesting. I think that was making a statement. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> that they were, of course, uh, one of our favorite um, criminal heroes, Pretty Boy Floyd, has a yeah. connection with the Missouri State Penitentiary, um, as does Billy Cook. Yes, uh, Billy Cook was, was there for... Mm, roughly three years as a as a teenager yes. um and um and um suffered a lot of uh, suffered abuse including rape um while he was there which probably did not uh, help the sequence of events that ended up in the spree killings but um no one more example of the violence at the penitentiary it does uh, and and <clears throat> there there are a number of mm, at least anecdotal cases of individuals being what we would certainly think of as prematurely sent to the penitentiary the idea that they had committed yes they had committed a crime but not to the scope of what we would think of today as being warranted getting sent to this location right no actually in billy's case it was petty theft and the idea that and I, and I think this is a fair assessment that many of the things that happened to him at the penitentiary uh led to him becoming the spree killer a few years later it certainly probably contributed to him going going over the line, you know, um, to the point of doing that. That's true. Um, and stepping back a bit with Pretty Boy Floyd and another connection with um, other events in the Ozarks with him is while he was at the uh, penitentiary, he he was there with. Um, one of the young brothers who uh and they became pretty good friends and then the young brothers um were involved with the massacre at brookline missouri outside springfield that was the largest um loss of um, law enforcement in a single incident up until 9 11 and uh, and of course, there's speculation that Pretty Boy Floyd was actually there at the time, and he's the one who started shooting. So, right as a possibility, mm -hmm. <clears throat> which it's it's interesting to conjecture, regardless. And um, interestingly enough, we also have Emma Goldman, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, who was definitely uh, a a a lightning rod um, persona and political activist into a, a certain degree um, within specific circles, particularly the um, communist and anarchist movements of the early of 20th century. She was a celebrity. Yes. Um, and and basically she, she was there for, um, 
political crimes, basically, for uh, trying to uh, induce people not to register for the draft. Yes. Um, and um, so, um, you know, it's something that's a little different than a lot of these other cases and not what you expect. Um, but um, again, just contributes to everything there, you know. Um, and, and, and I would say that from more from what seems to be apparent from her writings um, after being released in the Missouri State Penitentiary, um, her, her experience as a, as, a, as a guest in the state of Missouri did not reduce her opinions of anarchy. No, it did. If, if anything, it probably solidified it. <laughs> now, now here, now, now one prisoner that you can say is a little different kind of circumstance would be Sonny Liston. I agree. I like Sonny. Uh, actually, I'm a, you know, actually something good came out of the prison in this situation. And <clears throat> I. Sonny was born in 1930, um, essentially on a sharecropper farm in, in Arkansas. And at the time there was no requirement of birth certificates. So they don't really know what day he was born. They right. were really putting it at 1930. He died in December 30th, 1970, uh, I believe in Las Vegas as a comparatively famous boxer. And Mm-hmm. His death is unfortunately shrouded in mystery and has some conspiracy theories attached to it. Yeah. That, and it, it, it is, to me, that it is unfortunate because the, <laughs> the, the, the largest takeaway that I have from, from Sonny's history is he really was a pretty awesome guy. He, he was. I mean, he had a lot of you know, bum luck early on and ended up um, basically in, in, in a gang of thuds in St. Louis when he was a teenager and he end, ended up uh, getting caught, you know, with some muggings and armed robbery in 1950 when he was about 20 and ended mm-hmm. up in prison. But it actually might have turned his life for the better because it was there that um, the athletic director of the prison recognized his talent and uh, encouraged him to start boxing. And that's, it was actually at the prison he started learning to box. And um, so um, it, it ended up shaping him when he got out to become one of the greatest boxers of all time it did and uh, and George George Foreman described Liston as having the most natural talent and skill Um, quote Foreman George Foreman saying quote there wasn't anything missing from Sonny Liston he had the whole package Uh, much has been written about the effectiveness of his left jab, others have commented favorably just on his wide range of boxing skills. And he is listed as 
ranked as second in the ESPN.com's list of the hardest hitters in heavyweight history. It's pretty impressive. So it is. It is. And that his boxing career started at the penitentiary. It did. That. And actually, and, and actually someone at the prison taking notice and encouraging him. So right. Uh, so actually something that's a little uplifting of a story for once in these group of stories. It is, and, and we also have James Orray. That's not uplifting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he uh, he actually escaped at one Which point. Did happen. I I still find it impressive that anybody could. Mm-hmm. But, um, and of course, he's most known for, unfortunately, assassinating Martin Luther King Jr., so. Yes, and uh, uh, born in Alton, grew up in Alton, Illinois. Yes, and had other connections in the southern um, Ozarks, so. Mm. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> Fewer than six degrees of separation, which sometimes can be very exciting, sometimes can be a little chilling. Mm -hmm. um, and lots and of those chilling ones. <laughs> yes. And in some cases, the, uh, um, the, the, the Bonnie Hetty case uh, in particular, but some of these others as well, these. Uh, individuals committing really, really horrific acts, but largely getting caught because the things that they did afterwards, for example, after they got their $600,000, was just ridiculously stupid. Yeah. Yeah, often people do themselves in that way. Mm -hmm. And I, I find that particularly interesting and more than a little both sad and terrifying. We associate the the capacity to commit these acts and, and in the case of the this this particular you know the murder of the six-year-old boy a lot of not only audacity but a lot of moving parts a lot of planning a lot of process in terms of putting it all together that you ultimately associate with some sort of deep not only deep cunning but also a level of intelligence and then at the same time you know existing simultaneously is the fact that they're making just extraordinarily idiotic decisions in terms of um, trying to not get caught. And then of course- it, in, Overconfidence and arrogance often will do them in. And, and in the case of uh, James Earl Ray, he actually made it, I mean, to London, which I thought was mm -hmm. impressive. Yeah. Uh, but continued until his death uh, to deny his involvement and for better or for worse appears to have spawned a, a series of increasingly complex conspiracy theories surrounding the assassination. True. 
And then there's a prisoner who basically has become a pop culture and blues legend. <laughs> yeah, who is Lee Shelton. Yes, and what, what, one, one interesting thing about this is so often we talk about particularly folk songs and these folk legends, um, the actual beginnings are murky. Um, did, you know, did it originate here or there or this situation or not? But in this situation, we know the facts and we know we know who's involved in what happened for sure. Right. And, and probably in large part to the fact that there, there was a crime that was specifically committed, prosecuted and resulted in this man's imprisonment in Jefferson City. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, um, let's see, Shel Lee Shelton, was, he, he was an African-American man born in 1865 in Texas. Uh, he was working as a carriage driver in St. Louis and um, where he gained a reputation as a pimp and a gambler and was a captain in the uh, 400 Club, which was a political and social club with a dubious reputation in, in the Black community. Um, and... Um, Basically, um, he went by the nickname Stagley or Stackley. Um, and there's some debate about why, but sometimes, you know, some say it was because he went stag, they didn't have friends, that kind of thing. Um, sometimes um, that, um, it it was a, it came from the name of a riverboat, um, but regardless, um, he was known as Stagley or Stagley or what later in the blues legend is known as Staggerly. It is, <clears throat> it is, and it is it is a surprisingly evocative song. And as part of the folk legend, the song has. A variety of there's actually a variety of different aspects of the song or different songs, yeah, that are all associated with the same legend. And the the short version is Stagger Lee's uh, honor and masculinity is insulted over a hat. Yes, um, in by Billy Lyons. Mm -hmm. and, and in good old West fashion, somebody winds up dead. Yes, and the interesting thing is they were friends. And, um, and actually, as you, as you read through the facts of the case, it reminds me an awful lot of Wawa Hickok and Dave Tut. It really does. It, 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 it really does. Um, uh, although with a, with a vastly different outcome in the court case yes yes um uh, lee shelton was not as fortunate with the crowd as as wild bill was well but, and, and the 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 violence that was, was taking place too was um less of an established obviously it wasn't a duel but 
Right. I'm going to be at this place at this time and you're on your own. And more of violence that erupted into a brawl. Yeah, yeah. It was on Christmas night of all nights um, uh, at a saloon. And... Saturday night of the sacrifice. <laughs> Perhaps more more literal than than the pen is. Uh, uh, they weren't just roasting chestnuts. Um, no, they weren't. Uh, uh, Billy Lyons was a, a levy hand, and he was shot in the stomach. And they'd been drinking together, and um, then they started. They started talking about politics, and an argument was started. And we're not exactly sure the details on the argument, but uh, it goes that Lyons snatched Shelton's hat, his Stetson hat, off of his head, which is very analogous to Dave Tut taking Wild Bill's pocket watch as collateral for for a loss in a poker game or a faro game and um uh he did you know shelton demanded it back he refused um and here's where the stories diverge instead of then calling him out and saying meet me on the square at such and such time uh shelton just pulled out his revolver and shot him then and there um and um, then he picked up his his hat off of his off of Wyan's head and walked away. Um, but the story grew and became a folk song within a couple of years. It's first noted as being a song in 1897, and then by the 1920s it's being recorded as a blues song yes <clears throat> and th there's a, a number of bits of speculation in terms of how mm, how it how it arrived at that level of importance or how it impacted the culture in that way i think one aspect of it was this this particular uh murder and then consequently indictment and imprisonment um was noted in the pretty noted you know, was, was in the newspapers. There's a mm -hmm. this clear record. So it was part of public consciousness at the time. Um, at, the, at the same time, there's, there's various aspects of how um, Stackley's experiences began to speak very profoundly to a young black male population of the turn of the 20th century. Right, and the and the hat was very symbolic, uh, and it, it it goes back to its own form of honor culture, just as the argument with Hickok and Tut did. But um, at the time, young black men would wear a Stetson hat as basically a symbol of of swagger and freedom. Yes. And so taking away taking away the hat was a, a very emasculating uh, yes. act um, and degrading. And the and the <clears throat> the hat was the Stetson, and and of course various things in various cultures. But 
in you know in a number of uh, of cultural demographic sects the the stetson is iconic and um that that but in different ways they from what we can tell were not inexpensive um, yep. we're, we're looking at a turn of the century price of around 25 dollars uh, of turn of the century currency that in some cases uh you you would actually make payments on your hat right well 25 dollars was probably about a month's salary yes for most people and that it was so it was a sign of affluence uh, there was mm -hmm. but there's also a lot of symbolism and there was most importantly i think the the attachment the symbolic attachment of adult manhood emancipated free being an emancipated free man yeah uh, by being able to choose and purchase this symbol and and so the 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 degradation of the hat was was also incredibly potent and emotional and there was a lot of money involved that plus this is coming from a friend too which probably feel like a stab in the back a bit and then refusing to give it back and and i think that it, well coming back for just a moment clothing in general is something that in in our generation we've gotten really spoiled with the idea of not only easily accessible clothing, uh, but cheap clothing. Right, easily replaceable. Very easily replaceable. And that was, you know, not the case. It, it's something that I <laughs> was acutely aware of as I, you know, was purchasing wardrobe items at the Carthage battlefield in May. Yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, these handmade items in modern day 2023 22 23 currency um is largely reflective of what people of that era paid for yeah uh, not the same numbers but the same amount of effort coming out to to put together a wardrobe which is one of the reasons why most american settlers did not have a lot of clothes um exactly and <clears throat> as opposed to me who you know has a long history of finding things in the five dollar rack um buying them whether i need them or not and then i'm going where do i put all these clothes and the idea that that <laughs> you know that this something again something that we just are very accustomed to the idea that oh we have plentiful clothing oh i got a free t-shirt oh it's a t-shirt it's an expensive t-shirt for 20 bucks yeah uh, those types of things that was not the case stuff was hard to come by mm -hmm. and and consequently certain things had a great deal of potency in terms of what they meant within a societal structure very much so and but it, it is interesting how the the legend of the story morphed. Um, um, that it took on more meaning as time went on. Instead of fading, it became more potent, and it went went from this you know these uh, 
metaphors for manhood and and freedom to um, then um, more of a supernatural bent. Um, by the 30s, uh, there were stories uh, recorded of people saying that they believed you know, that he had been born with a call over his face, of course, meaning that he would have sight uh, or ability to see spirits um, and or being destined for trouble that may explain you know, why he was into gambling and prostitution um, or even that he had sold his soul to the devil in exchange for the hat. Um, that the hat may have been magical. I mean, it, it just, um, it morphs and then it, and then the renditions of the song morph over time and to you get finally to the Nick Cave version, which basically he travels to hell and challenges the devil. Yes. <clears throat> the, there's mm, these, these layers of cultural, but also folkloric and then supernatural potency that are being layered on in some cases and I, I find the uh, the contextualized arguments of this particular link interesting uh, but saying that it is a, a a metaphor associated with uh, Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho yes and that I'm, I'm still working through that. This is from uh, a series of articles written by James P. Hauser uh, associated with the, the symbolism of Staggerly. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I, I recommend if you're not familiar with the song, look it up on YouTube. Uh, I really like the 1950s blues version the best. Mm -hmm. I, I do too. But there's a that, number of versions, even ska versions. Um, I like I like Lloyd Price's um, version. the The association with the song uh, "Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho," fit meaning fought, and Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. Um, I'm again. I am still attempting to put those connections together in a meaningful way. Me too. I mean. Um... <sighs> I see the I see his argument, but I don't. It doesn't have that feel um, of. I don't want to say authenticity necessarily, but it it just doesn't ha seem to to fit naturally for me. Um, um, you know, uh, these earlier stories of that were recorded about belief of his, you know, sort of the supernatural connection made me think more of the stories of Robert Johnson and selling his soul at the crossroads and whether or not what was Shelton almost the prototype for that legend. The potential of that idea. That and seems to make more sense to me than the other, but. The, the one thing that, and of course, the, the thing that 
the the supernatural conjecture certainly the association then with Missouri State Penitentiary but the fact that we are talking about culture that is again directly associated with St. Louis with what is the St. Louis Metro a lot of people don't realize that about a third of the modern day St. Louis Metro is geographically within the Ozarks and so it is there are these cultural ties and of course Mississippi River culture which is a big part of this as well um, mm -hmm. is the and Missouri River culture not dissimilar in terms of the the, the river boats and uh the, the all of these elements tie in to helping inform what we either know as Ozarks culture or perhaps we don't know consciously, but these are things that have uh, laid foundations for, for the development of our collective, our communal culture, whether we realize all the things feeding into it or not. Um, I, again, mixed feelings in terms of this particular argument connecting Staggerly with the uh, spiritual Joshua at the Battle of Jericho. I'm very familiar with this song as a Southern Baptist. Um, mm -hmm. And <clears throat> even though at the moment, and certainly additional information or further readings and for further uh, introspection may, may provide me with a different view, I, I'm, I'm in this unique liminal space. I find it, all of this incredibly fascinating. But I'm in this very unique liminal space because on one hand, I feel that the argument is at best tenuous of the connection. However, I love the argument. I, I do like the argument. It just doesn't seem as natural a fit to me as some of the other aspects. And, and uh, I think, yeah, and I, I tend to agree. I, I think that, I think that what we're, what is being driven at the, the, rather than the argument itself, but I think the idea that is being driven, driven home is that Staggerly, through the use of, of folk song, through the use of the blues, through the use of, of, uh, of these very powerful symbols, became not just a, an interesting folk hero, but became a larger than life character whose the elements, perhaps not the elements of his actual life, but the elements of the poetry, the elements of the, the, the songs, Mm -hmm. spoke in many different layers in many different levels to a variety of people oh i i agree with you there they're they're in the article um in the this particular article and and he this 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 author's written several uh several pieces on it uh, on all of this, but the hidden message in Lloyd Price's Stagger Lee, that is the article in question. Okay. And there, there was one reference that really jumped out to me for, for personal reason. Uh, and that is that the use of secret codes in African-American culture of the 19th and early 20th century was not limited to music as documented in Jacqueline Tobin's book, Hidden in Plain View, special symbols or designs were placed in quilts, 
which served as secret codes to runaway slaves. The quilts were hung outside of houses along the route of the Underground Railroad to indicate that the home was a safe haven for runaways working their way north to freedom. I have that book. Yeah. Oh, neat. <laughs> uh, it jumped out to me. Uh, I love the book. I've had it since 1998 mm -hmm. when I was in college. And uh, it's, it's a very, very interesting book. And I, I think that there is just incredible... Uh, power and testament to the resiliency of the human spirit, the resiliency of the human experience associated with these elements and this incredible connection between um, social statement, but not just social statement, but the pragmatism of survival and folk yeah. art what we think of as folk art and the fusion between those two things that my, I, I'm consistently astounded by. It's, it's, a, it's a theme that has always fascinated me as well. And uh, dang it, it makes me want to quilt. <laughs> and I'm not ashamed to say that I actually meant that. That... Uh... One of these I, just I just wasn't expecting that as the segue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm envisioning a state of the Ozarks fest like 10 years from now that we'll have a display of quilts and I'll be like, I made all those. You're welcome. You're welcome, community. You're welcome. <laughs> You would have to because I would end up stabbing someone with the with the sewing needles before I, <laughs> I think that is that is right there. I uh, I'm not <sighs> for the record, I have yet to quilt anything. Uh, so it's anybody's guess whether that's gonna happen. <laughs> uh, I do know people we might solicit to do it for us, but <laughs> I, not, not having nightmares of getting off this off the plane in Helsinki and being greeted by fans expecting me to have brought a quilt. And the audience is going, what? <laughs> anyway. Unless they're in Helsinki. Um, and uh, <laughs> as, as a little bit of contextualization, the we're, we're excited and we want to thank all of our listeners on the podcast uh, for listening from wherever you are. And uh, the international reach of the Dark Ozarks is growing and we are very appreciative of that. We, we really are. And, and, and we're, we're a bit astounded at that as well, but uh, um, glad that uh, people are enjoying it. And on, on that on that quilting note, maybe we should <laughs> segue into other locations. <laughs> like Columbia, Missouri, where there are also quilts. <laughs> Most assuredly there are. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll get over my, my quilting bee here in a moment. Um, well, before we jump over there, maybe we should talk about the um, the governor's mansion briefly. Oh, we really should. Uh, beautiful mansion. Uh, 
It is. Absolutely beautiful. Unmistakable as well with its mansard robes. And it has, of course, it, I mean, it's, it is the mansion in use. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it has an incredible, incredible history. I love that architectural style. Uh, the, the mansion was completed in late December of 1871. And uh, built, interestingly enough, I thought, the entire place, it was constructed in eight months, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, it is for, for that building. Uh, it was designed uh, by St. Louis architect George Ingram Barnett. He was born in Nottingham, England. And you know, I'm, I'm very interested. I'd like to check out the Henry Shaw House uh, on the grounds of the Missouri Botanical Gardens because it was both were created by the same architect. Oh, it's I, the Shaw House is beautiful. I've been there before. And I have been to the Botanical Gardens in St. Louis, but I was very young. So uh, I remember it, but I can also say that architectural motifs were not something <laughs> that I was paying a lot of attention to. Yes, very, very young. But there is a a particular haunting that's actually associated with the governor's mansion. It is, and it, it, it's, it's also when, when you, um, the, the family involved, it, it is another one of those six degree moments in the dark Ozarks connected to various stories, but um, the haunting involves the uh, nine-year-old daughter of Governor Crittenden, in who passed, she passed away in um, 1882 at, during the Christmas season, and her, her name was Carrie. And um, her father, Thomas Crittenden, played um, quite a role in Missouri history, not only during the Civil War, but um, just months before Carrie passed away, um, he was involved in a, in a bit of controversy um, um, in that uh, he, he, put a, he, he put a bounty on the head of Frank and Jesse James. And he basically worked with, Rob, with Robert Ford to assassinate Jesse James uh, earlier in the year, April, I believe. And then the issue came about of Frank James turning himself in and um, the governor was afraid that um, once the assassination became known, he, uh, wondered if Frank James was going to try to kill him. And uh, ultimately uh, a situation was brokered for Frank to turn himself in. And um, in exchange for a show trial and that basically what they got through those events and then just a few months later, Carrie passes away. Yes. <clears throat> and the, the, the controversies regarding 
the James had actually resulted in threats of kidnapping in regard to regards to Crittenden's young daughter. And so yes. there was a, a lot of sense of protection that was surrounding her, the sense of attempting to keep her safe. And for by all accounts, uh, as a nine-year-old, she was extremely popular uh, simply mm-hmm. among the, the residents of Jefferson City. The idea that, that folks who had had the opportunity to meet Carrie loved her. Yes, and, and as a result, they said, you know, that des- that the um, the air was uh, desolation and great sorrow. Um, and so um, that she really was mourned by the community. Um, and she was buried in the woodland or the old city cemetery. Um, and then over time, her grave marker was actually lost from the ground settling and so forth. Uh, the grave was refound in the 70s. Um, yes. And then a marker put on it not that many years ago. Um, but it appears that uh, many people feel that she is still at, at the governor's mansion. Yes, or or a portion, some some type of her her energy, and that does seem to be the the haunting. Two other um, individuals were noted to to have died in the mansion: um, Governor John Sappington Marmaduke in eighteen eighty seven, and First Lady Mary Dockery in nineteen oh three. So mm-hmm. there, you know, but um, when you're dealing with notable structures that have been around for this long, um, the, these mm, sad elements of the human story are gonna take place there as well. It's simply, you know, by de facto. It is, it is. Um, but, um, I mean, it's, and it's not necessarily a, a, a a bad haunting it seems to be playful um and i think that's why a lot of people think that it probably is carrie is because it seems very childlike yes and now um you had the chance to go to the mansion i've been by it i've been in it but it's been quite a number of years ago you're ahead of me (laughs) <laughs> I've not been in the governor's mansion um would love to see it sometime the again uh, downtown jefferson city i find just uniquely fascinating as a whole yes well and of course it was it was more planned than most cities in the state mm-hmm. as it was laid out so and i think that has a lot to do with it and and from my my opinion, uh, a number of these locations downtown do have hauntings associated with them. Uh, not malevolent, but certainly definite activity. And now we might might turn to uh, Columbia. <laughs> Something that really struck out, stuck out to me in regards to Columbia. 
and as a as a just as a, as a geographical primer, Columbia is outside of the Ozarks proper on the northern. Not by line. much, but <laughs> not by much, but it is outside. Uh, technically, St. Charles and Alton, Illinois, are outside, but they they definitely fall within that borderlands space. But something that I, I think is fair for individuals who are not particularly familiar with Missouri history or northern Missouri history is that Columbia and the Columbia region was a big part of the Civil War in Missouri. Yeah. Um, well, in the Centralia, Centralia battlefield mm -hmm. being a, a prime example. It is. It is. It's definitely a, you know, we're, we're dealing with extreme factions and we're also dealing with a lot of natural resources. This was rich farm country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that is easy to overlook in today's society because we all know that, you know, food is grown in a giant distribution center for Walmart. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> in, the, in the old days, we had to grow it ourselves in farmland. And, uh, and additionally, uh, the war was run not on gasoline, but on horses, and horses yeah. needed water. These are all, all became strategic, uh, key points of strategic importance for the war. And uh, as well as things like location of the railroad, uh, location of um, the, the telegraph wires, location of um, primary wagon routes in, in varying directions and where troops could be help, you know, could maintain for it for a time and not starve to death. Very true. Yeah, foraging became a real issue uh, in a lot of places. And all of that and all of the, the violence associated with it has resulted in some really interesting anecdotal hauntings and sometimes more than anecdotal hauntings in the Columbia area. Mm -hmm. I, I think one that really jumped out is the Jewel Cemetery on South Providence yeah. Road. <laughs> and, um, this is so some some great resources are are, are online at voxmagazine.com. Uh, important that it's voxmagazine.com. It's not vox.com. Yeah. Important distinction. But they've got some great regional articles. I'm really impressed with some of the work that they've been doing. And mm -hmm. I <laughs> the <laughs> To me, this is a great summation of modern paranormal work. We have the Jewel Cemetery. Uh, George Jewell owned the land where the cemetery resides. Uh, was um, from the seven in the seventeen hundreds to the eighteen forties, if I remember right. Yes, and his second wife Cynthia is thought to haunt the area. Stories of her death vary. 
Uh, she may have died in 1822, giving birth to her son. Um, another story says that it, she escaped her husband and went to Mexico and took a slave with her. Um, and then both she and the slave mysteriously died in Mexico and her husband had their bodies brought back to Columbia. So there's, there's a wide variety of, of anecdotal reports on this. Sounds but, like a little bit of gossip went on. In the I think mostly, mostly <laughs> gossip. Uh, they, the, the story does all seem to point back to um, Cynthia haunting the cemetery, but anecdotally, she also haunts the Waffle House next to the cemetery. Well, you know, of course, we don't know exactly what all, you know, where the Waffle House is in relation to the property line that they own, but who knows, the Waffle House may be sitting on a, you know, her favorite garden or whatever, you just don't know. Um. I, I, I just, I want to, you know, I, I don't, I don't normally make a big deal about franchises. It's very few franchises that I actually like, <laughs> but one exception is Waffle House. And I just want to go on record for saying I love Waffle House. I, I do too. We... <laughs> and, and the fact that it's open, you know, that it's just open, I, that really avails itself to us as investigators because we can finish an investigation really, really late and then be yeah. like, now what? We're going to go have waffles and coffee. Exactly. Possibly, possibly eggs. And yeah, Waffle House at that. <laughs> yes. I know it's, it really is the perfect cultural storm for us to potentially do a, uh, an investigation. We don't have to do an investigation and then go to Waffle House. We could just go to Waffle House and do the investigation there. Eat through the whole investigation. I can do that. I know you can. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and while we're on the, the subject of interesting hauntings, in the Columbia area, apparently the Walmart on Grindstone Parkway is also haunted. Yes, uh, and I do find it interesting that it's particularly the toy section and that they believe it a little boy haunts it, um, including reports of floating toys across the aisles. <laughs> Suspended hula hoops um, falling to the ground, hearing a child's laugh, echoing through the aisles even when no children are around. I will admit that would be creepy. You might check out the Walmart. It's um it's an interesting um, haunting. A lot of times I find those kind of hauntings tend to be tied to either something that was there before or something that happened nearby and mm -hmm. the child spirit kind of wanders in. Um, so it'd be interesting to, to know if they could figure out why the little boys there it, it really would and it's not unrealistic that the haunting itself may have gone back 
100 plus years, 150 years. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Now, now one place in Columbia that, uh, um, well, a couple, um, we tend to have haunted colleges in Columbia. Uh, apparently so. Um, <laughs> Stevens College, and, and Stevens College has, and it has a long reputation of being haunted. Um, okay. Yeah, um, I've I've heard those stories for a, a very very long time, um, and of course Stevens is a it's a private college, um, a pretty old college, mm -hmm. and various um, accounts. Um, the one that I've heard the most offices often is around the theater building. And uh, I was thinking about this earlier today in reviewing and there's a number of colleges and high schools for that matter that have hauntings associated with them. And a lot of them seem to be centered around the theater or auditorium. That is interesting. What are what are your thoughts in regards to that? Um, may maybe an association of of happiness or you know um, fun in that space. Um, maybe some of them tend to be like Stevens may be related to theater students or theater directors. Um, so having a strong emotional connection to the space mm -hmm. and what went on there. Um, and probably almost muscle memory, I would think that mm -hmm. really reminding, you know, the space itself being a trigger right i think that's that's possible um that <clears throat> along with hotels and riverboats theaters are almost a liminal space themselves oh i think they definitely are um in in several respects just from the you know the suspension of disbelief aspect um get you know uh being carried away from everyday uh worries um and then for the performers it definitely is um i mean there is a reason that they keep ghost lights lit yes there are the uh this great list of uh, speaking of columbia college and stevens college is uh, from legendsofamerica.com. I was very impressed with what they put together. Uh, Columbia College was founded in 1851, Stevens College in 1833. They have, there, there's two legends uh, haunt, uh, regarding hauntings and they're extremely uh, similar mm -hmm. of, uh, of, a, of a student, a girl at the college, uh, being involved or engaged to a Confederate soldier and mm -hmm. then the Confederate soldier being killed or executed and the uh, in, in both cases then saying that the girl 
uh, commit suicide as the result of the death of her fiance or lover. Yes. Um, and, and I think that um, just goes to all of the emotions and trauma involved in the war too, you know, that, um, and probably that those kinds of situations happened more than we give credit to uh, during the Civil War. It really, to me, regardless, and you can debunk the haunting or not necessarily be able to prove the haunting, depending on your perspective. Um, but I think to me, the, the, the more important message that's both historical and cultural is it really highlights that situation that you had uh, Confederate and Union families, you had Confederate and Union soldiers, you had battle lines that were constantly moving, but you also had Confederates and Union um, identifying individuals who were in very close proximity to one another. And this type of connection, these types of connections were happening at times very tragically. Yes, yes. And, and, I, and I think it made an impression just generally on people. And then, um, you know, I think that's in part why you end up with these tales, whether or not the hunting is really going on or not, uh, they, they just uh, resonate. They do, and it, <clears throat> with the Columbia College haunting, uh, the, the girl is said to have jumped from the conservatory, which is now known as Williams Hall. So if you're familiar with, uh, with these locations, then guess what? Your building may be haunted. <laughs> um, but that she had actually become engaged to this Confederate soldier and vowed to wear only gray clothing until uh, a white wedding gown could replace it. Uh, her fiance is killed not far from the college by Union soldiers, and the girl jumps to her death wearing her gray dress. Consequently, the apparition is referred to as the gray lady which mm -hmm. really jumps out to me because that's it, I, I'm like okay thank you House of Ravenclaw we have uh, <laughs> uh, arrived at the Grey Lady and I didn't even have to go to Hogwarts for it uh, I can just go to Columbia there you go stop at the Waffle House and go over to Columbia College and that uh, I'm I identify as the Ravenclaw house, in case anybody wonders. I took an online test once. My niece and I, she was Slytherin, I was Ravenclaw. I was very relieved to be Ravenclaw. Um, that was a while back. And, the, <laughs> and for official record, I have never taken one of those quizzes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> I know what I am. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need an online. A 12 question online quiz to find out who you are. And it doesn't have anything to do with Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Oh, what can I say? I'm an unrepentant nerd. Um, I did like this though, because apparently sometimes the gray lady will uh, will open your windows if it's really hot. 
uh, and possibly do your ironing. Oh, now that now, now that's a haunting I can get into. <laughs> Same here. I can leave out the I, never mind leaving out the cookies on Christmas Eve. I will just leave out the baskets of laundry for the great lady. <laughs> at, at any time, really. Uh, I did find the, the haunting associated with Rockbridge Street State Park to be really interesting. Um, there is a cave there called the Devil's Icebox Cave. And yeah. it is said to be haunted by a malevolent spirit. And there's documented over seven miles of passages within the cave. And uh, I don't think you can get in unless you like really register for it ahead of time. You may not even then, I'm not sure. But... <clears throat> Uh, you know, you pretty much had me at Devil's Icebox. Yep. That. I mean, that's that 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 piques the interest, and uh, but yeah, I'd be interested in 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 details of this malevolent spirit. I, you know, another interesting haunting at Stevens is with the. Um, um is with the theater and and they believe it they believe that the haunting is the founder of the department theater department Maude Adams who had she had been a retired um Broadway actress um who retired um uh, after her mentor uh died Charles Froman and then in 1935, the college president coached her into opening the, um, the department and um, that she can still be heard in the auditorium. Um, and um, also reciting uh, Shakespeare and uh, Chanticleer. Interesting. I like that. I, I do. That uh, again, coming back to well, I love the Shakespeare connection, but I also love this connection to the 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 mm, the, the supernatural, uh, essentially heightened atmosphere that can be associated with uh, theater and the and performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it 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 makes sense to me. It does, and it brings up something that culturally is very interesting. You know, I think one of perhaps valid superstitions that arose around stage performance, the, the idea that you were tempting fate by pretending to be someone else. You, you go back to uh, the fact that uh, traditionally it was considered to be bad luck to call Macbeth by the name of the play. You called it the Scottish play. Yes. Um, invoking the actual name of the play invited bad luck. Uh, you'd go back referencing our, our Christmas special, uh, the Dark Ozarks holiday special. Welcome to Saturnalia. Um, the, going back to Saturnalia and the, the association with, um, with pantomime and with performance being associated with um, a, a connection with the gods and 
touching the divine, touching the reaching through the metaphysical veil, through performance. And the, uh, I think, long-standing Anglo-Saxon superstitions that have been associated for centuries. And then you begin to see those concerns uh, associating out of the uh, initially strict Presbyterianism uh, of saying, no, we're not having any plays. You can't play act, you cannot perform, uh, Mm -hmm. you cannot do these things. And today, being inundated with uh, TV and film and performance and performance being a, an integral part of the educational system, etc. We look at that and we laugh and we deride the those those silly Puritans for being sticks in the mud and you know not understanding. But I think that it it is important to consider uh, how they would have been seeing these performances, particularly in terms of um, sort of this this heightened metaphysical temptation of fate. Yeah. I, I, I think that our perspective is so far removed now from that, it, that um, it, it's, it's hard to conceive um that that would be a concern um so but when you think about it it's kind of come full circle from more ancient times to now um and to be honest it's venerated and um to the point that um just as the gods were venerated in ancient rome so very much so and sometimes we really see that on high display, which it, again is is very interesting. I think some uh, dynamics of the human psyche's need for the metaphysical, regardless of belief structure, are not going to be worked out of our programming. No, I think it is hardwired, and, and that may be why um, spirits such as Maud Adams hangs around right (laughs) the muses yes (laughs) oh for the record i made a fantastic aslan once i still have the artwork to prove it i have no doubt Uh, became a huge fan of of Narnia out of that. (laughs) It's, again, I love, I love interacting, working with this aspect of the Ozarks, these northern borderland regions, and then northern Mm -hmm. Ozarks themselves. And uh, there's, I still contend it's some of the most evocative and beautiful countries, especially in autumn. I got to spend time there Again, like I said, in 2020 it was in, in October. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the neatest weeks of my life, just seeing the countryside, seeing these places. Um, 
really getting to just soak up the atmosphere. You have, of course, this incredibly rich uh, and varied uh, American settlement history. You have mm -hmm. um, Irish immigration history. You have German settlement history. Um, there's, there's so much there. It, it really is. And, but it, it really, I mean, it, it um, informs us in, in certain ways that some other areas don't, or at least in a different way. And I think it's important to, when we think about these kinds of stories, as well as the geography, to be inclusive and think about how they relate to each other. And um, if nothing else, it just makes things a lot more interesting. It does. It does. And, uh, and of course, <laughs> not only the railroads, but originally the streams of, of riverboats plying the Missouri. Yeah, which... right at Jeff City and right south of Columbia. Mm -hmm. uh, so much happened. And um, I do encourage people to, if you're in that area, check out some of these things because it's, it is amazing. It is, it is, and uh, and again, often overlooked. It is, and that may be a good point to depart on tonight, but we do want to remind everyone to not forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for bringing the Dark Ozarts to everyone. On our next episode, we discuss how we perceive dark history and the paranormal changes with pop culture. Catch the Dark Ozarks podcast on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or about any other podcast platform. Thank you, everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks. <laughs>